Well, we're glad you're here today. Um, we're a little, a little lean today. There's a Jubilee conference, there's a Scent conference, there's a, all, all kinds of stuff going on, and so thanks for being here and being a part of this. We're in a three-week series called Reframing Church, and uh, the purpose of this series is to I- identify um, what is our true identity and our purpose and our function and uh, our, our mission as a church, as the larger church, as a larger worldwide, you know, little C Catholic church, the universal church of Jesus, but also what that means for us at Campus House and where God is taking us and so next week, we're going to um, really dive into uh, what does God have for us over these next few years, and we're going to reveal some exciting things about that. Today, I really want to look at um, our life together. Uh, last week, um, I put up this slide. Um, as we go through the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, these are some some themes that he points out about what church is, and that was really what, was, what last week was about. What is church? So the church is a house. That's what we talked about last week. The church is a body, and the church is an outpost for the mission, for the, for the kingdom. Um, ways that we are to be, we are to be holy, we are to be unified, and we are to be missional. Uh, some characteristics that we are called out, and we are built together, and then we are sent out. We are people of communion, we are people of community, and we are people of commission. Uh, we put some Greek words to it, um, ekklesia, koinonia, and diakonia. Ekklesia is, it means called out. We are the, the called out ones to be holy, sanctified. Um, uh, koinonia means fellowship. Um, in, in our church growing up, uh, if people put their membership in the church, then the preacher, they would come up front and the preacher would say, this is Oklahoma, so it sounds kind of, kind of like this, I'd like to extend to you the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> so I don't know why the right hand, but it's always the right hand of fellowship. And uh, so, but koinonia means, means gathered together, the, the, the fellowship of the believers. And the diakonia really points to our mission that's a, a word that deacon comes from, so serving and, and uh, outward, outward facing. Um, here's where we went last week, that a peop- we were to be a people of communion called out to be the holy house of God. And the passage we used was out of Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in chapter 4 today, but I want to go back and hit this one. 2.19 says, you are members of God's family. This is who you are. We, we, we talked a lot about what church is not, but what church is, you are members of God's family. Together, he says, we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So in the first couple of chapters of Ephesians, Paul reminds the church that they had been, had been outsiders. They had been separated from Christ. They were without hope. 
They were without God. And then he uses these two words over and over, but God, but God. It's like God is the one who, who intervenes and changes everything. So, but God, in his mercy and grace, gave life and gave hope and gave uh, an identity. And he said, now you're being built together into the dwelling place of God. Not a building, not a doctrine, but the collective of Jesus' followers on mission with him for the life of the world. That's our calling. That is who we are. We are members of God's family. We are adopted. We are reconciled. We are included. We are God's house built on the foundation, which is Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We are becoming a holy temple, a house of God. And we are church being built on and by Jesus. Not only the foundation and the cornerstone, but we said he's also the architect. He's the builder. He is the one who moves in and abides with his church. So this is who we are. Bonhoeffer says our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. So how we interact with each other, how we see each other, consists solely in what Christ has done and is doing in each of us. So today we want to ask the questions, what's this community look like? What should church look like? What are the characteristics of life together? What is Jesus' desire for this house that he is building? So today, that was weird, you are church a people of community built together to be a unified body of Christ. You are church. This is where we're going today. But first, a joke. <laughs> you know how um, your, maybe your dad or grandpa or weird uncle always has the same joke that he tells over and over and over? This is mine. This is mine. And uh, it's a bit dark, so I have to <laughs> warn you of that. Uh, is an Emo Phillips joke, who's this really bizarre comedian, but it's very poignant, and it fits what we want to talk about today, okay? So humor me. Once I saw this guy on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he was about to jump, and I said, don't do it! And he said, I have no reason to live, no one loves me, and I said, well, God loves you, and he said, well, I know that. I said, do you believe in God? He goes, Yeah. I said, are you Protestant or Catholic? And he said, I'm Protestant. And I said, oh, really? Me too. What franchise? And he said, uh, I'm Baptist. And I said, oh, really? Me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist. And I said, oh, really? Me too. Are you Northern Baptist conservative or are you Northern Baptist liberal? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist conservative. And I said, oh, really? Me too. I said, are you Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region or Northern Baptist conservative, conservative Eastern region? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region. And I said, oh, really? Me too. <laughs> Are you Northern Baptist Great Lakes region conservative council of 1879? Or are you Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region council of 1912? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region council of 1912. And I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him off. I told you it was dark. 
Today we are looking at what, what is unity in the body of Christ. Because frankly, as that joke so poignantly displays, it doesn't feel so unified, this body of Christ, you know. Gordon Con- Conwell uh, Seminary, a couple of years ago, did some research. Just They, they determined that it was an estimated 47,000 Christian denominations. 47,000. That doesn't count all of the different kind of sects and schisms within those denominations, but 47,000 denominations. And so it doesn't feel so, so unified. But in the church to the church, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul is so urgent, so much implores them to strive for unity. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to live Lead a life worthy of your calling. The therefore comes right after Ephesians 3, which is this awesome uh, verse about um, beyond what you could ever possibly ask or imagine according to his power at work in us. Praise be to the glory of Jesus, you know, that he has done this magnificent work. And the first three chapters of Ephesians is just laying out this magnificent work. And then he gets into the, the his nacho libre, I would say, needy greedy that he he gets this is this is how you live this out and so he says therefore i beg you i implore you to lead a life worthy of your calling for you have been called by god always be humble and gentle be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit binding yourselves together with peace You've been called. You've been called out. You are the ecclesia. You've been called out of the world in order to live a holy, holy collective life that reflects Jesus. But your calling, we, we talk about calling a lot, especially in, in ministry circles. What, what are you called to? Do you feel the calling? This vocational uh, trajectory for your life. But our primary calling, and this is across the board, every single one of us, our primary calling is to Jesus. You are called, and so he says, um, you belong, you are called out of, but you're also called into family, into this God's house that he is building. Colossians 3 says, you are called into one body, the, the church. And in the words of Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, with, with great privilege comes great responsibility. And so what does life look like in that house? What does it look like to walk in a way to lead a life that aligns with that calling? And Paul says, live a life worthy of the calling. And don't get hung up on the word worthy as if we could do something to make ourselves worthy. No, it's by grace that we are saved Jesus is the only worthy one who then claims that we are worthy. We are righteous. This is the reality of who you are. In, in, in light of that, then, we live in light or aligned with that calling. 
What are the goals of God in all of this? How do we play a part? What kind of character and attitudes and actions move us toward this vision? How do we walk in this light? Well, Paul gets super practical. So verse 2, excuse me, he says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, make every effort to keep this unity. And so there's a, a ramping up, you know, humility, gentleness, and then patience, and then forbearance, and then striving, striving, striving to keep unity. Paul uses similar words in Colossians 3 and Galatians 5. This is really the fruit of the Spirit, you know? Humbleness, gentleness. Later, Paul writes about, in this same letter, about mutual submission. And we get hung up on that word submission, but it's a beautiful word. It just means to come under. It means not servitude, but willingly laying down our ego and our pride and our need to be right in order to build up others. It's the way of Jesus in Philippians 2 that even though he is God, he laid down his God status and he submitted himself to the cross so that we would have life. That's the, that's the attitude in the heart of Jesus. He says, patience and long-suffering and forbearance, bearing with each other. I mean, even, even the way that word sounds, bear, is hard. Bearing with each other when things get really hard and when there are disagreements and there are conflicts and there is tension. Making allowance for each other's faults, the New Living Translation says, which is impossible absolutely impossible without the love of Christ. Christ actually tying us together in 317, he says, you are rooted and you are established in love. That's what frees you up to lay down your need to be right, my need to be right, in order to bear with one another in love. All of these character traits are pointing to the goal of verse 3. He says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. There's this urgency. There's this striving. And here's the cool thing. It's not to create unity because that's impossible for us to create unity. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates unity. We are called to maintain it, to sustain it. God already brought down the walls that separated us and brought us into his family. And so we are commissioned to cultivate it, to grow it. Why? Why is this so stinking important to God for his church, for the church of Jesus to be unified? Go back in your Bible, if you would, to chapter 1. Slip back a page. Verse 9, if you were here um, last week, I talked about God's plan, right? And this, he lays out God's plan. Everybody wants to know God's plan. Here's God's plan. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is this, 
to fulfill his good plan. And this is the plan at the, at the right time. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. I don't know if you, if you have realized this lately, but we live in a really broken world. <laughs> just want to remind you of that. At the right time, Jesus, the promise is, Jesus is going to bring everything back together. He's going to restore all the broken pieces, including people. We talk about this in terms of the now and the not yet. We live post-resurrection, but pre-Jesus' return. So we have all of this living hope, right? You don't have a hope that disappoints. You have a living hope that is anchored in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. That's big stuff. And that affects how we live individually, and that affects how we live corporately as a church in anticipation and expectation of Jesus' return and the restoration of all things. That restoration project has already started. The remodeling has already started, beginning with his church. And so the church isn't just this, this nice place that we come together and we, you know, sing some songs and we hear a message and we have a small group and so we can know each other and we can do life together. There is a, we'll talk about this next week, but there is a, a much bigger mission. There's a much bigger thing going on that we are not just existing together. We're not just tied together but by Jesus, but The way we are together actually reflects his big plan of restoring all things. So the church is to be a model of that restoration project. We don't do that so well. Two things happen when God moves into this new kind of house. One is unity. He brings us together to embody and demonstrate and proclaim the way of Christ. This is to be, this right here, in, in the church scattered all over the world, is to be a, a preview, a sample of God's revealed mystery. And he says, um, we're brought together by the peace. The glue is the peace of Christ. It's like two-part epoxy. Have you ever used that? You know, where you have, you have you know, I, don't, I don't understand. But you have these, these, these two chemicals, and when you put them together, they actually produce this bond, right? So, so Jesus is like, he's the epoxy. He's, he's, what, he's what holds us together. Christ in us, the Holy Spirit bonding us together. And it's, it's not unity for unity's sake. I talk about kind of polar opposites all the time because we live in a really polarizing world, right? In the church, I think there are, are some segments of the church that are all so much about doctrine and so much about being right that love kind of gets lost. And I think there's another pocket of the church where it's all about love and all about kind of, you know, uh, acceptance that the truth gets lost. And Jesus is full of truth and full of grace. 
And so with this section, I think there is a, a danger sometimes of, of unity for unity's sake, that there's a trend of being so tolerant that, that people tend to ignore or deny any theological or ethical differences, which is actually not love. It's being indifferent. It's apathetically like glossing over instead of acknowledging and discussing or working through differences in the context of friendships or in the context of churches with churches. Here, uh, we are to grow together into the head, which is Jesus. That is what brings unity. If unity is the aim, rather than Jesus being the aim, then we just become a social club. When Jesus is the aim, we grow together as a living organism. In the next passage, part of this passage talks about that theological robustness that ties us together. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's not just can we all just get along. What ties us together is the oneness of God. Ken read this at the beginning of our worship today. There is a, a oneness that permeates our life together. Verse 4, back in chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all and living through all. The message version says we are permeated with oneness. But that oneness is rooted in theological truth. We're, we're one body, followers from different places, and we speak different languages, and we live in different cultures, and yet we're one body. We're one spirit. Tons of different approaches about how to live out this Christianity thing. But there is one spirit the calling on us is to be sensitive to what he is doing in and around us. There is one hope, Jesus said, and Paul said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we're just lost. But he did. So we have hope. We have confidence to live in unity. There is one Lord. We, we just need to listen to Jesus. That's it. There is one faith that Jesus crucified and resurrected is the object of our faith there is one baptism, which is a response to the grace of the cross. You aren't baptized into a particular church or a denomination. You are baptized into Jesus, water and spirit. There is one God, triune God, three in one, who calls us into relationship. So we've been called to unity, togetherness, oneness by being humble and gentle and patient and bearing with each other through the hard stuff. We are one in Christ, but each member has a distinctive role that contributes to the health and the mission of the whole. Which leads us to verse 7. You still with me? Okay. Good. <laughs> this switches a bit. So we're talking about unity, but then now we're talking about individuality. However, he says, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. The message version says this. I love this. That doesn't mean just because we're called into this unified body, it doesn't mean you should all look and speak and act the same. That would be incredibly boring and really inefficient. 
out of the generosity of Christ, each of us has been given their own gift. This introduces us to the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, the idea of spiritual gifts. Not everyone gets the same gift. God is the one who distributes them through his grace. 1 Corinthians 12 says the spirit is the one that apportions the gifts. He divvies them out. 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he's received, she has received, in order to serve others. It's grace in its various forms, right? And so again, the big picture where this is heading is that Christ is fitting all things together. The restoration project of earth and humanity and in the building up of the house, he supplies everything that is needed for that project to participate in that goal. Verse 11, Paul starts like listing out some categories of gifts. He says, these are the gifts God, Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. It's not an exhaustive list. If you want to go to Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4, I'm sorry, we are in Ephesians 4. First Peter 4, he, he like parses out, there's like over 20 things listed and not even that's an exhaustive list. But the emphasis is that, verse 12, their responsibility, the point of the gifts is not so we can say, hey, this is my gift, Look at me. The point of spiritual gifts is to edify the body of believers, is to build up the church, is to point to Jesus and say, look at him. Verse 12, the responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ, making disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples going deep, anchored to the foundation of Jesus, becoming mature and complete, so then we can go wide and tell the world about Jesus. To embody and demonstrate the ways and means of Jesus and then proclaim it to the world. Verse 13, this will continue, this will keep going. Until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the fullness and complete standard of Christ. And then he says this, verse 14. Then we'll no longer be immature like Christians, like Christians, like children. That's funny also true sometimes we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth which is what's going on in Ephesus instead we will speak the truth in love growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body the church he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Again, the message version says he handed out gifts to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work. 
working within Christ's body, the church, until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son, fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive in Christ. We take our lead from Christ. He is the head. We pay attention to him. He is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. There's no scripture that tells us how to figure out our gifts. Cool thing about the body of Christ, and this is a whole other sermon, but we discover our gifts, I think, by being in community. It's like community calls out those gifts in us. You know, I, I notice that when we're in this small group that you have such a gift of encouragement. You, you have this way of, of taking this scripture and, and really parsing it out in a way that it makes sense to us. I, I, I just see this gift of teaching in you. You have such an ease to tell people about Jesus. It's not forced down their throat. It's not bait and switch. It's not some program deal. It's just, it just flows out of you. I, I see this gift of evangelism in you. And on and on and on. Isn't it cool when a spiritual gift isn't something, isn't a trophy in our case, but is something that is birthed in community? That wasn't a rhetorical question. Isn't that cool? Yes. All right. So this building project that we're called to not only brings unity when we get passionate about, passionate about what God wants to do in our lives, and we accept the adventure, but in the process, God brings maturity in our lives. The fullness of Christ to take on the character of Jesus. Folks, here's the message. You are the body of Christ. You are the house. If you are a Christian, then you are by definition a part of the church. And some of us don't really want to be <laughs> You know, at least segments of the church. It's like we wear a T-shirt that says, I'm not with them. I, I put on that T-shirt every, every time I read the news, I think. But the reality is I am part of them. If They are in Christ. And some of us don't feel good enough, don't feel worthy enough to be associated with them. But with them is exactly what we are. With them is really with us. With us is the the, the body of Christ and all of its ugliness and all of its just brokenness. We are unified. We are glued together by the Holy Spirit. And yes, there are parts of the body of Christ that are really hard to associate with. And those are the days when I need to put a mirror in front and say, hmm, that's me as well. Which brings us to this humility. Not Sometimes we have an us versus them mentality with the world, but sometimes we have an us versus them mentality with the church. So instead of uh, vilifying, I need to be praying. I need to be praying. 1 Corinthians 12, we're not going to take time to read it, but Paul talks about, you know, the, the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. The foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. It's like we need each other. 
We need each other in the collective church, worldwide church. I meet, I meet church, I was in Philippines, and I was just so struck about how much they had to teach me about church. We need each other as the church. We need each other here as the local church. There's no purely individualistic relationship with Jesus, which goes against a lot of evangelistic verbiage. So hear me out just for a second. For probably the last three decades, part of evangelism has included in a lot of circles this question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That's a good question. It's not just our family's relationship with Jesus. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? That question led to another question. If you were the only one on the planet, this isn't a question, this is a statement. If you were the only one on the planet, Jesus would still have come and died for you. Which, sure. Here's the the side effect of those two questions, that it's all about me and Jesus. And I, I have lots of conversations every year. I've been doing this for 30 years here at Purdue. Every year I have conversations. I don't really, I love Jesus, but I hate church. And so what it's led to is it's just Jesus and me. I, I don't need church. And we live in a culture that exalts individualism. You know, it's weakness to depend on other people. We like our autonomy. We like our self-sufficiency. Paul says that's insanity. The reality is that separating a relationship with Christ cannot be separated from a relationship with his people. We are the body of Christ. You have a direct relationship with him, but a lot of what he does in and through you is connected to other Christians. So without the church, we can't be a Christian. Here's my problem. I've got a lot more, and we don't have a lot of time. (laughs) So I have two choices. I can talk really fast, or I can cut out some of this, or you can practice forbearance with me as we add another seven or eight minutes, okay? Are we cool with C? Okay, good. So, ah, what kills community? What kills community? And that's, uh, here's a, that's a question. Let's just talk about that just for a second. Say that out loud. What, what kills community? Let's brainstorm together. Selfishness. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Pride. Yeah. What else? Those are biggies. How those two kind of show up, I think, is that uh, an unwillingness to forgive each other, uh, an unwillingness to, to confront each other when we've been hurt, an unwillingness to reconcile. Um, another thing that, that kills our community is, is gossip. 
judging others over non-essential issues. And self-orientation, where we are so focused on ourselves, which is pride and selfishness. Posturing, seeking to impress, acting like we have it all together, untruthfulness, all of these things kill community. Paul says love must be without hypocrisy in Romans. No putting on mask. Um, and so there, instead of an independency that just is so flagrant in society, God is calling us to an interdependency. It cuts against individualism. It cuts against self-sufficiency. It cuts against this inhumanity. Eugene Peterson says, we are community. We are not ourselves by ourselves. Human beings are not solitary, self-sufficient creatures. So the, the question is not, you know, am, am I going to be a part of community of faith? Because we've already said that if you are a Jesus follower, you are by nature in the community of faith. And so the question then is how? How, how do we do that? Unity, not uniformity. Uh, I've just really quickly, I just was was thinking about some practices of interdependency, and, and some of this comes from a book by Shirley Guthrie. It's a guy named Shirley, which is funny. Some really quick, some practices of church, some practices of interdependency, okay? So you can have something practical to take home with you today. Seeing and being seen. That's a practice of community, seeing and being seen. I love, if you read through the Gospels, how much it talks about Jesus turned and looked. The rich young ruler, Jesus turned and looked and loved him, it says. Peter denies Jesus three times in the garden. At the same time, the rooster crows. Jesus is walking He's to his, his trial. Jesus turned and looked at Peter, not with these eyes of, oh, but with compassionate love. To turn and look, to see each other. We don't look. I don't look. I don't see. We also don't let ourselves be seen. In uh, John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, you know, and she says, well, let me go get my husband. And he goes, actually, you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the guy you're living with isn't your husband. And then she changes the subject. <laughs> we don't want to be seen, you know. We have this protecting role of an image. And so part of, of being in community, part of interdependency is to risk the involvement in others' needs and problems, but also to admit our own fallibility and be vulnerable. Second one is speaking and listening. Trying to understand one another, listening in order to really know, sharing in order to be known as well, using words, speaking with the intention of clarifying and not concealing the truth but also listening with teachability and openness. Not just uh, in, a, in a conversation or in a, in a group, uh, not, not just waiting until there's a break in the action so I can spout my knowledge on this subject, but really, really listening to one another. 
helping and being helped, learning to rely on one another, not playing God, not making ourselves feel better, recognizing that our own help for others is limited. We can't heal the deepest hurts. We can't remove guilt. We can't restore the depth of pain and oppression. Most of the time, what we assume is good for someone falls short of what is actually good for someone. Only Jesus saves, but we can stand with. We can come alongside. We can acknowledge also that we need help. And finally, to submit to, one, to God, but also to submit to each other. Submission is God's calling. Submission is God's design. Being present with the people around us means to really being humble with one another, to come under, to build up. Watchman Nee, this Chinese preacher 100 years ago, said the life of Christ in me will gravitate toward the life of Christ in others. This is God's church. Jesus says, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that means we can hang on a little looser to our need to be right when we realize that church in its various forms belongs to Jesus and not to us. When we see the other as God's anointed, our relationships are profoundly affected. Our lives tell a story, whether we try to or not. What kind of story are we telling? How is Jesus tying us together? And and what are the places that are killing our community? And how can we submit to Jesus and to each other? Again, this is uh, the guy with the unfortunate first name, Shirley. This is brilliant. To be reconciled to God in Christ is to be reconciled also with other people. It's to be led out of a sinful attempt to live in self-sufficient, autonomous, isolation above, apart from, or against others, and to be drawn into the community where all barriers that separate people from each other are broken down. To be open to receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's gifts of faith, hope, and love is to be part of the community to whom the life-renewing power of the Spirit is promised. To be saved is not just to be assured that I will go to heaven when I die. It is to enter into a new relationship with God and fellow human beings in the community of God's people here and now. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the glue. Jesus is everything. And when we come together under his lordship, under his leading, it completely affects not just how we live our lives, but how we live our lives together. The cross changed everything becomes this intersection, like this really visual intersection of grace and truth. It becomes this intersection of all of these people from all of these backgrounds, from all of these different storylines coming together, not to lose their individuality, 
but to build up the church, to have this calling and this mission and this purpose that is just higher than my own autonomous little story. Oh, sweet grace, how great.